my friends. This is the Reverend Mary Vano, and I want to welcome you today to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, where our conversations about life and faith always include Jesus, others, and you. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with the Reverend Aaron Jean Ward. Aaron Jean is an Episcopal priest, a writer, a spiritual director, and a recovery coach. I became interested in her work last month when I learned about Discerning Sobriety, which is a course and a growing community that helps people integrate spirituality and discernment practices into their relationship with alcohol. I found that to be a very intriguing idea. And so, Erin Jean, I am thankful that you joined me for some conversation today. Hello, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm always really pumped to find anyone who's interested. So I'm just honored that you noticed and that you cared. So thanks for having me. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Like, where are you from? You might be able to hear in my accent that I am not a Northerner. I am from the buckle of the Bible Belt, as I call it. I'm from Alabama, born and raised there, and ended up becoming a Texan in order to go to seminary and spent quite a long time in Texas. Spent two years in Oklahoma before I came back to Texas and currently am in Austin. I have kind of been all over the place spiritually. I grew up really non-religious and then became a fundamentalist when I was in high school. All the kids were doing it, so I was too. Out of that, when I got into college, I started doing really dangerous things like declaring an English major and reading the Bible as literature because I took honors comp too and slowly wove my way into a more Episcopal way of understanding my faith, which led me into the Episcopal church in college. It was actually out of that discernment of being an Episcopalian that I discerned also a call to the priesthood that had really been reverberating all the way back to my fundamentalism, where I was told that women aren't called into ministry. And so that was clearly not what was being asked of me, even though I think the Holy Spirit might have disagreed with my pastor at the time and ended up leaving undergrad and going straight into seminary, which is where I became a Texan and studied at SSW. I was ordained a deacon at 24 and priest at 25. So my ministry was really first career and continues to be a part of my life and served in a variety of church contexts for about seven and a half years before I decided to pursue the work that I'm doing now, which is work primarily in recovery, but also in its current iteration is really specifically about me doing my calling within that, which is not just recovery work, but integrating recovery work into spirituality. When I left parish ministry, I went to go work for a digital recovery company to get the experience I needed in that world. And now I'm kind of finally bringing my priesthood and my recovery into one vocation through the discerning sobriety work and the coaching and spiritual direction that I offer. Our paths did cross years ago in Austin. I was already graduated from the Seminary of the South when you were a student, but I was serving St. David's there. That was years ago, but it's good to be together again. I love how your story speaks to integration. That's a word that you used, integrating spirituality and recovery work. But I see how that's worked in your life and integration of your vocation to be a priest, but also to help others in a journey of recovery. That certainly sounds like the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
It's interesting that you mentioned that because I end up in these situations where I offer recovery coaching packages, right? It's four weeks. You buy a four-week package once a week. And then I also offer spiritual direction. But my work is so gray because there are people that come to me for spiritual direction who are sober. Uh And there are people who buy recovery coaching packages with me because they want someone who is attuned to how their spirituality might be affecting their relationships with alcohol. And so what you find is I'll get into a recovery coaching meeting and they'll sort of say, can I ask you to be a spiritual director for just like one second? And they'll (laughs) kind of dig into that. And then I'll get into spiritual direction and they'll say, can I ask you to be a recovery coach for just like 10 minutes? And so I really personally love that for me, it really is one vocation. I do work with people in recovery coaching contexts who are atheist or who do not want spirituality to be a part of it. And I would never put that on a person, but the people who are supposed to be working with me are working with me. And I feel that really, really deeply. I also have people who come to me who do not consider themselves spiritual and who then have spiritual questions. Because I think what we know is that things like grief and hope and joy, those are universal. Those aren't known to a certain creed or religion. And so I still get to do ministry as I understand it, but in every context that I sit in. And I love that about what I do. So it sounds to me like God is putting some of your life experience to use for the kingdom of heaven. Tell us about that life experience. What brings you here to this ministry? A lot of things, I think. I often laugh that if you had told me 10 years ago that I would be sitting here talking to you about this today, I would have told you you were insane. I think really for me, the life experience of journeying from fundamentalism where alcohol had a very specific connotation of being sinful and really taking that seriously because I was in a context where you took everything that you were taught seriously. And then out of the full heart of faith and honesty, traveling into the context of the Episcopal Church, where colloquially people call themselves whiskey palians, and we're told wherever there's four, there's a fifth. You know, it was a contextual shift for me that put me in there. And I wanted to be that, right? Like I wanted to be inside the community that had called me. And so I took on that identity, which only fed into things that are part of my family history and other parts of my life, my anxiety. Anxiety, all of those other real embodied mental health challenges I had and found myself really at both ends of the spectrum, finding that neither of them served me and neither of them served my joy and neither of them led me into an abundant life. What I found is that breaking out of really both of those rigid contexts and forging my own way forward, which for me was the way of both priesthood and sobriety, which can be a really lonely path. And I hate to say that, but I talk to other sober priests in the Episcopal Church and it is a very lonely path to be on. But the loneliness of that path feels a little bit more like when Jesus says we have to take the narrow way than feeling like it is something that's impossible. It just feels like the path that is, again, leading me into my most abundant life, my most joyful life. But I don't think I would have known how to go down the path if I hadn't been in both competing contexts first. That's so interesting. And I particularly appreciate how you characterize in some ways what some perceive as the looseness of the Episcopal Church, the generous spirit of the Episcopal Church around alcohol, especially you've characterized it as a kind of rigidity. I sometimes have really bristled at the prevalence of jokes about Episcopalians and alcohol. 
there are so many <laughs> and I don't want to be humorless, but I've always felt like those jokes are just obscuring a problem that maybe we don't want to deal with. But you experienced that as rigidity. To belong to the community was to have a certain relationship with alcohol. To be a part of the community is perhaps to drink. It was a rigidity that did not work for you and was stealing your joy. I know that you are writing a new book. The working title is Awakening in Sobriety. What is God inspiring in you there? What do you want to tell us? I appreciate that question. Real quick, I do just want to throw out, because you brought up something that's really important to me, which is that you want to stay humorous. And my number one hobby horse is comedy. Like I'm literally doing online courses in comedy. I've written for comedy magazines. I took a class with Upright Citizens Brigade during the pandemic because comedy is central to my life. So I am pro comedy. I think that there are many ways that we can be lighthearted with ourselves and open to what I believe to be the humor of Jesus Christ. Like, I think Jesus was probably a pretty funny dude, given the wild things he saw in his life. We know that there are entire types of comedy that's just absurdist humor, and there's no way you could live the absurd life of Jesus Christ and not have a couple punchlines up your cloak. I just feel like there had to be a couple of jokes that he was making. And yet there are ways that we can keep humor and not let it be focused around something that is actually possibly taking us out of joy and taking us out of humor. My experience of alcohol and the effects it has on a person's mind, body, and soul is that it's a numbing force. I had a real attachment to the idea that alcohol made me comedic, right? That like comedy and me being fun were all wrapped up in this beverage. And I have found that nothing could be further from the truth. My joy was unlocked through to your question that you actually asked to my awakening in sobriety. Because what I really want to hit on in this book is that I think we have an idea of sobriety that is certainly true for some people, but it's this sad consequence. It's this idea that I've gotten to a point where I have no choice but to have to make this decision in order to be okay. And that's real. I mean, that's a very real part of it for some people. But I also believe that my sobriety was a joyful, abundant life decision that has made me happier than anything else in my entire life. And the way that I'm able to exist in my life is so firmly rooted in what I believe to be the gift of Jesus Christ. Everything I was told about what it would mean to believe is something that I feel palpably inside my sobriety that I did not feel previously. And so part of what I want to do through my work generally, and especially through the book, is really redefine what is sobriety? What is it about us that wants to put a pall over that? Like, what is it that makes us want to make that a dirge? When in reality, it is Easter Sunday in its fullness. I mean, I don't know how to talk about my sobriety without expressing that it is my resurrection and that I now live a fully resurrected life. I want that for other people. And I want that to be what we think of when we hear that a person we know has quit drinking. 
I want us to hear that and to say, oh, congratulations. That's amazing. I'm so happy for you. I know that that must mean for you that you are living so joyfully now. I don't believe commonly when we hear that a person's in recovery, that's what we think of. And so I really want to kind of toy with how we understand what it means to remove that from our lives in order to serve our lives and serve our joy. So you feel that your sobriety has allowed you to experience the resurrection in your life. That is the gospel. What did you have to do to get there? I was, I would say very sober curious for many years. Something that I really like to hit on whenever I talk about this is that I got sober super in secret. And so often I think we think we know who Mm -hmm. is quitting drinking and we really don't. A person can be continuing their actions in your presence the way they always have. And they can be going home and reading quit lip books, right? My running line is that I read the big book with a box of Chardonnay, you know, like I was actively drinking and also didn't really like how I drank because of the context I found myself in. I didn't know how to quit. Again, I would say that like my presence in the Episcopal Church was part of that. I really didn't know how I was going to do things like go to church and also not drink. I had to really wrestle also with the identity portion of that. What would it mean about my identity (laughs) if I lost this part of my life that had really become an identity marker? And so I really wrestled, you know, I did what I thought I could do, which was I gave it up for Lent because I was like, oh, this will be a very Episcopal appropriate (laughs) way. That is very Episcopalian of you. Which is very interesting because I'll tell you this, it took, you know, only one week into Lent for someone to tell me that Sunday was a feast day and I could drink on Sundays. So even when you're trying to like do that inside of the customs of the Episcopal Church, we will find ways to tell you actually you can drink. And so even that was not a foolproof way for me to quit drinking. You know, and I told people like, no, I'm not going to drink even on Sundays, but that's just a little bit of an insight into how much we really want people to drink and how much we encourage people to drink in this context. And so I made it to like Palm Sunday, which was day 40. And then I went back to drinking because I was moving and I was doing all my goodbye parties. I had accepted my rectorship in Oklahoma and I was going to do the like geographical change, right? Like I was going to move, I was going to start over and I moved and I didn't drink for like two months, but I was doing it pretty much alone. I had a couple of sober friends that I would call. But it was the social part. You know, I had already removed it from my home. I had removed it from just sort of daily life and put some rituals and prayers in place of that and was doing really well. But I didn't know how to have a social life without alcohol. I think I went to one big dinner and didn't drink and that was okay. But I was lonely. I was deeply lonely. And so finally, I was invited to go out to a bar, you know, and I said yes. And I went back to drinking because I just did not know how to really build friendships And we don't really know how to invite people into community without inviting people to bars often. Often the way that a young adult is invited to hang out is to go drinking. In some ways in our culture, we've really leveled those against each other, community versus sobriety. I chose community in that moment, began to drink again. I would say I drank for maybe like six months back into that stint. Well, what was interesting is I had had removed it from my house, right? I still wasn't drinking every day. I was only drinking socially. And I had had this two months of not drinking, not Lent. I had two months of just really not drinking. 
And it was the harsh juxtaposition of this is how I felt when there was no alcohol in my life. And this is how I feel even when I'm just drinking occasionally. Huh, I think I know which way I want to live my life. And the way I wanted to live my life was sober. And yet I kept drinking because I thought I was going to be alone. I thought loneliness was going to be just inevitable. One day for other reasons, reasons not related to sobriety, I kind of just started to wonder, you know, what would a good life look like for me? I wasn't super happy with how I felt. I didn't really know what was going on internally, but there was just some, you know, brooding in UI I was working through. So I started to make a list of all the things I just wanted for myself. I mean, it was like pie in the sky, right? Which sounds silly now because it really wasn't that pie in the sky. But at the time I was like, if I could build a life for myself, what would it be? And it was, I would love my body. I think the actual words was like, I would feel sexy, right? Like I would feel good in my body. I would feel confident. I would write a book. I would be inside of a vocation that really felt like it hit all the touches of my joy. I just wrote all of these things down, right? I looked into it, like literally looked into the sheet of the paper. And in the way that God speaks to me, I knew that that was possible for me, but it was on the other side of sobriety. It was a very clarifying moment for me. Like, I don't often say that like voices speak to me, like actual audible voices, but that is as close as I've gotten to the Holy Spirit saying, if you want this, it is here for you. And it is on the other side of sobriety. To this day, the only thing off the list I wouldn't say I've received is marriage, which to be fair, it's the one thing that requires some other buy-in. So like, I'm going to give myself some grace around that. When I look into the things that were really based in what I could do for myself and who I could become in mind, body, and soul, all of them are now true. God's promise to me was not without void, that the life that I had hoped for what really is and is currently on the other side of sobriety. And so I really felt buoyed by that. I started to make a plan to quit drinking. At the time, you know, I was in a rural context and the only AA meeting was at the church where I was rector. And so I probably wasn't (laughs) going to go to that. I want to be really clear that like AA saves people's lives. And so you won't find me speaking negative words about AA. Again, I read the books. It did not feel like what I was looking for in terms of community and some of the nuance I was hoping to find around fluidity and gray and openness. I still call on parts of it because I think it has real worth, but it wasn't my path. And so I joined an online community, which was great because it let me do it really privately. Because like I said, I got sober really privately. The irony of that being, I kind of made myself a promise, like a vow to God that God didn't keep, by the way, which was that I would not ever tell anyone. Like it would just be very private. And it was like, I'm just going to get sober and this is going to be me. And it's just going to make all the current parts of my life better, right? Like my life is going to change. We're going to stay the same because I hate change. I'm an Enneagram six and we're going to stay exactly the same, Mm -hmm. but I'm also going to get sober. And I guess God was like crossing God's fingers when we talked about that, because (laughs) about four months into my past, I think it was four months, it was maybe longer, maybe six. I received an invitation to preach the clergy renewal of vows for the Diocese of Oklahoma in the cathedral in Oklahoma City. And I was very honored by that. I was like, I have no clue why you would ask me to preach, but I'm not going to say no to that. And so I agreed to preach that. 
had already quit drinking when I agreed to preach that. And between the invitation and me stepping foot into the pulpit, I had reached out or heard from a variety of people about different clergy I knew who were struggling in their relationships with alcohol. Now, mind you, no one knew I was sober. This was all just things that were coming up. I was really burdened by the fact that I was being asked, what is it that you would like to say to all of the clergy in a diocese? Meanwhile, knowing that people were suffering in that way, right? And so I wrote like four sermons and you know how you start a sermon and you're like, oh, this has every ounce of energy of a sermon that begins with like Webster's dictionary defines like just (laughs) horrible sermons, like sermons Mm -hmm. that I was like, I cannot physically say this. Like it's so bad because I knew there was one sermon that I had to write. When I wrote it, it fell out of me. Like, I think I wrote the entire sermon in like 20 minutes. Like it was just everything I was supposed to say. And it was the sermon in which I shared from a pulpit. The first time I ever talked about my sobriety was in a pulpit in a cathedral in front of all the clergy of a diocese, if that tells you anything. I preached that sermon, the hardest, but also best sermon I've ever preached. I refer to it today as the sermon that changed the trajectory of my life because it really did awaken a calling in me. Because I wanted to tell my story on my own terms, to go back to what we said earlier or what I said earlier about what we hear when we say a person quit drinking and what's been true for me. Mm -hmm. I didn't want people to hear through the grapevine that I quit drinking and project narratives on me that weren't true. So what I did, I preached the sermon and then I went to a coffee shop in Oklahoma and I put it on all my social media networks. And I shared in all my different worlds that I quit drinking and what that was like for me. And what I found is that, again, I didn't want to change my life. I just wanted to keep doing my thing. But my private messages, my DMs just blew up with people who were really struggling and didn't feel like they knew spiritual leaders who were sober or people who were in Episcopal communities where they didn't feel like they had any support from their clergy around wanting to change their relationships with alcohol. And so I began to really kind of already do the work I'm currently doing, but I was doing it through DMs and emails and alongside a rectorship, right? Like I was doing all this other stuff while doing my rectorship. Over time, it just became really clear that the work that I was being asked to do, I was being asked to do it because it doesn't exist. That was really a huge calling for me in which I felt like God was saying to me, this could exist and it probably should exist. And I think that it is your calling inside your priesthood. And that's the very long story of of why I sit here today. resurrection always goes through death, but our paths are not always the same. The death that I need to experience to get to resurrection is not the same as the death that you need to experience. When I read about discerning sobriety, that title just really caught my attention because it tells me that first of all, we're talking about our relationship with God and God's will for us. And God's will in my understanding is always to our benefit. God always wants what's good for us. So we're looking for God's will, but it also suggests that this is not like a black and white question. The question here is not, am I an addict or am I not? The question is broader than that. What is my relationship with alcohol? And 
in what ways is alcohol destructive in my life? Or in what ways is it promoting things that I'd rather not have in my life? In what way is alcohol inhibiting my joy? Tell us about discerning sobriety and what is the sort of range of relationship that people might have with alcohol? Yes, I first just want to resonate with what you heard in the title and just have a moment of gratitude because that's what I want people to hear in the title. (laughs) But what you want people to hear in the title is not always what they hear. Yeah, I was trying to think, you know, what is the right way for me to express what I'm doing because it's different? It's hard to put language around this. I'm in the stage of like rebranding discerning sobriety and realizing there aren't images for it. Do you know what I mean? Like whenever you're looking into the stupid (laughs) website, you're like, what's the image that conveys this? And you're like, by holding a coffee cup. (laughs) I know. Or like, you know, we always joke that like hands are always like in everything and the church does. It's just like hands and pictures of like the world. And you're just like, oh my gosh, this isn't good. How do you put words around the things that don't have words, which is also the question of theology, right? Like, how are we putting words around the thing that doesn't have words? But discernment really stuck out to me for a couple of the reasons that you picked up on. And I would just add to that, that first of all, discernment always works. And we don't go into discernment knowing what the end is. We go in with faith and with the belief that we're going to end up where we're supposed to be. I think that there's a real gift in opening up this conversation and taking away some of the barriers that we might put around it. To your point, like, am I this or am I that? Those aren't the questions we're asking. The questions that I'm actually asking are, how are you in a relationship with your body right now? How's that feeling for you? Because the course takes the shape of really trying to do some of this work of redefining what it means for us to be in relationship with alcohol, but especially looking into our minds, bodies, and souls. How is it affecting my mind? How is it affecting my body? How is it affecting my soul? And then it really culminates through tons of spiritual practices. It's about 20 lessons and 20 practices that you're given throughout the course to work through that you can use to just kind of put your finger on the pulse of different questions and parts of your life. But it culminates in the question of just how do I want to be in a relationship with alcohol? That can mean very different things for different people. But I think there is something really beautiful about what happens when we set the intention for ourselves. If someone had come up to me and said, I think you need to quit drinking. I think I'd still be drinking right now, right? I had to come into my own awareness. And I think there's a real power in trusting that you will come into your own awareness, right? I can't fix you. I can't change you. I can offer you tools and I trust you. Ignatian spiritual practices have been huge for me because one of the ways that I talk about Ignatian spiritual practices, especially the examine, which is really kind of a backbone of the course, is that the examine trusts you. It lets you answer the questions. And I want this work to trust you and to build up your confidence and to help you really kind of get into the seat of your intuition, which because I'm a Christian, I would say my intuition is very deeply in conversation with the Holy Spirit. But our bodies do tell us, you know, there's wisdom from our bodies that we're not getting if we're numbing them. And how can we awaken to that and listen to that? The other thing that I'm deeply passionate about is destigmatizing coping. I think we can look at people who are in certain relationships with substances and really demonize that. And especially we will demonize ourselves for the ways that we have done that. But We are all using the tools that are accessible to us. 
a lot of my drinking was exacerbated due to trauma and things that were happening in my life that were out of my control. I have to practice a lot of self-compassion and look back and say, you know, she was doing the best she could at the time. And the question that I ask with the people that I work with is not, why did you do that? Why did you use that? It is, first of all, thank God you survived that time in your life that was so impossible. It took so much strength and resilience for you to be able to make it. At the time, alcohol was one of the tools that you used in order to survive. And the question we're asking now is, how do you want to cope differently? Are there other tools you'd like to place in your life? Maybe that doesn't mean removing alcohol completely, but maybe we want to let alcohol become a different part of our lives and have different coping mechanisms for trauma and challenge. And then we can sort of figure out where alcohol might sit in our lives if it will end up sitting in our lives. But again, trusting the person in front of me, whether that's in my course, in my recovery coaching, to figure that out for themselves. Because I think when we figure it out for ourselves, it is something that we move forward on, as opposed to that external voice telling us, hey, you need to do this, which can be something that really brings out defensiveness and shame. And defensiveness and shame actually feeds the drinking, right? It feeds the way that we use substances to numb out. It does not help us get in right relationship with it. We are recording this in the season of Advent, a season of expectation and looking forward to the coming of Christ into our lives. And I really appreciate what you said there about compassion. The way that we need to look back is with compassion, grace for who we have been, for where the world has been. But we also need to cultivate that expectation for what can be, what is possible, what God desires for us. As we look back with compassion and look forward with hopefulness, perhaps there we find the sweet spot of what we can do right now in faithfulness. Most Episcopal churches use alcohol in communion. Do you have thoughts about the sacrament? Do I? This is a question that I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to say it because we're kind of in the deep waters of the things that will piss people off. (laughs) And I say that lovingly. I have a lot of thoughts about it. I've actually been thinking about it a lot right now. It is not something I'm digging into in my book. My book is intended to really be a personal look. So it is for an individual to Mm -hmm. wade in and look at that. I do have a desire to do more work around the Episcopal Church's relationship with it. I always exist in a question of, is the Episcopal Church ready to have that conversation? I don't know that we are. So I'm hoping that things like this, like your gracious invitation, will let us begin to have that conversation. The only thing I'll say about that is when I go to the Eucharist, I usually take the wine. I don't serve in a congregation right now, but this summer I served at a congregation for three months. And the main reason I took the wine is because given COVID, I'm the only one who can. And so in that moment, I felt really like I think the right thing to do is to be in persona ecclesia and to receive this because they can't. In other circumstances, I might have abstained. But again, I think one of the big questions is just logistically. I mean, there are people who, if alcohol touches their lips, that's deeply triggering for them. And so regardless of in persona Christi or in persona Ecclesia, that person should not be taking Eucharist. I would never say, oh, you should do this because you need to be in persona Ecclesia. It's all personal, personal piety at that. Drinking Mm -hmm. a sip of wine does not trigger me. And so I felt able in that moment to make that a theological decision. Always want to remind us that we fully believe that communion in one kind is full communion. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wish we'd lean on that more. I think the pandemic might have made us lean on that. 
And I hope we will use that as a reminder that we can not have one and receive the presence of Jesus Christ. I think the deeper question I would ask that I'm trying to figure out how I want to dig into this in my own work is liturgical theology, especially in the Episcopal Church, suggests that what we do when we receive the Eucharist and offer the Eucharist is real presence. But we also believe that what we do matters, right? Praying shapes believing, shapes praying, shapes believing, and on and on and on. And I would hope that as a church, we could begin to reflect on the fact that If what we actually do matters, if the ritual matters and tells us something about what we believe, we need to spend some real time thinking and praying through what it means that we believe Jesus meets us in alcohol, that the real presence of Jesus Christ is mixed up into alcohol. are fascinating questions. And I do think that engaging questions is going on a journey with God, getting into the mystery. And we may never find exactly the answer, or at least not an answer for everybody. We may find an answer for ourselves. The goal of the work that I do in discerning sobriety is not, again, not to come to a rigid decision. Like when I ask that question about what it means for us to be in a relationship with alcohol and believe it's the real presence of Jesus Christ, I don't say that with an end in sight. I think that the church could bring mindfulness and discernment practices into having a greater understanding of how our relationship to the sacrament says something about what we believe. What does it say about what we believe? And then also integrating that into the reality of our greater relationship with just alcohol as the Episcopal Church. But again, I don't say that to say, and we need to now remove all alcohol from all churches and no longer have that as a part of the sacrament. I'm saying what a gift it would be, what a rich gift it would be for us to choose to ask the question and enter into discernment around that. The other thing that I will add, because I think it's tangentially related, is I'm a recovery coach in that I was trained at Tempest to be a recovery coach and work with a lot of people who are trying to quit drinking. But as I started my own practice, because I have my own you know, private spiritual direction and recovery coaching practice, most of the people I work with are not working with me to quit drinking completely. They have come to a point where they do not like how they are in relationship with alcohol and they want to change it. The language I use is if you are seeking to change your relationship with alcohol in any way, I would love to work with you. When people see recovery coaching, though, I think they, again, sort of like how when we hear somebody quit drinking, we have a whole narrative we put on that. I worked with these people and they are just trying to change the way that they drink. Now, it's true that sometimes when they start to change their relationship with alcohol, they might decide to quit drinking. And I certainly have people who are trying to sustain sobriety or get sober. But I just want to, again, say I do not show up to my clients with an end goal. They pick their goals. We do goals each week. And so we really do sort of course correcting over the course of four weeks to try to get them into some rhythms and rituals that really serve them, mind, body, and soul. Again, I am not showing up and saying, you need to do blank. I'm asking questions and letting them chart their own course inside their own agency and inside their own discernment. Asking the questions is the first step. It's what made me Episcopalian. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> it is a wonderful thing about being in the Episcopalian, the freedom to ask these questions, because in the questions, we find our freedom. It's the resurrection that we are moving toward always. I want to make sure that listeners have the resources to take advantage of what you're offering. And I will put some links and resources along with the podcast, but tell us, Erin Jean, how can people find Discerning Sobriety? How can they find you? How can they gain what you have to give? <laughs> my personal website is erinjeanward.com. We can link that. It has everything about my recovery coaching packages. If you want to dive into that, it also has a blog and I've been trying to use my blog as a resource with free resources, right? So I just did a big holiday blog with some reviews of all the Trader Joe's holiday beverages, but also some tips on how to either hold to your intentions to drink differently during the holidays or stay sober during the holidays. And it also has something about how to be a good host to people during the holidays and make sure that your hospitality is being extended to people who don't drink. Because there's lots of reasons why people don't drink. It's not necessarily that they're sober. And so we want to really honor everyone who comes into our home or into our space during the holidays. I also have a master list that I'm always updating of my favorite non-alcoholic beverages that a ton of people are using to inform their church gatherings and their get-togethers. And so I've been really impressed with all the churches and organizations who have reached out and said, we like downloaded or printed your list and went to the store. And now we have equally attractive non-alcoholic options at all of our events. So it's been really exciting to feel like that's there and that's all free. So just go grab that off the website. Also, I have a podcast, Mocktail Hour. Me and my friend Ellie Singer. Ellie is a mindful drinker. I'm sober. Every episode, we test a new mocktail or grab a new beverage and sort of give our live review of it, which is super fun. Just trying to be a resource, but we also take listener questions or questions from followers, really trying to offer some support to people. Again, a great, fun, hopefully free resource that you can grab and listen to and enjoy. Also, Discerning Sobriety is a course that is accessible through discerningsobriety.com. I offer a variety of ways to pay for that. So there's a pay what you can option. Use the contact form on any of my websites and reach out to me. It's really important to me that this work is accessible. This is my full-time job and I have to pay my rent. And so things do have a price tag, but I think people who need care should receive it. And so at the end of the day, I'm a priest and I have a priest's heart. And so I really want to make sure people get the care that they need. So make sure you reach out if you need things at a different price. We will have a January cohort of Discerning Sobriety coming up. I really encourage people, if you're already considering doing a dry January, why not do it with a course that will help you really do a deep dive into reflection again with no predetermined end. You'll get tons of spiritual practices. You'll get a community of other people who are digging into it. So if you're already doing dry January, definitely give that a shot. You also might want to coach while you do dry January. So you just have some support around that. Happy to work with anyone on that. And in January, I'm super pumped. We will be launching the online digital community for discerning sobriety, which is on a monthly subscription model, but it's going to be super price accessible. It's sort of like joining a Patreon, but you get lots of support and other people in community. So all of that is accessible right now. And again, just reach out. I love to create resources for people. So ask a question and we'll figure out a way to get some support around it. Well, Erin Jean, that is so wonderful. You have so much to offer. And I am thankful that you have found a way in your life to offer this for others. I have a feeling you're already making a difference in people's lives and that's only going to grow from here. Thank you. 
In this podcast, we do talk about joy a lot. I introduced the episode by reminding us that joy is about Jesus, others, and you. It's a kind of dance that we enter into. It's not linear. We don't know where we're going to end up. And yet by joining in the questions, joining in the conversation, we get to experience the joy of a life with God. And I appreciate that you talked a lot about joy and how your life in sobriety has been your pathway to joy. I trust that that's going to be an inspiration to others. As I frequently say, you have made my joy complete today. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on this episode. Thank you for the warm welcome. I do just want to say that anytime I'm invited to speak, it feels like such a gift because a lot of people don't want to talk about this. It's important for me to name my joy and my gratitude for people who want to let us have the conversation. So thank you for offering a space where we can have this conversation. And again, not have a predetermined ending. Like let's let the mystery of Jesus Christ be the guide. And I thank you for being a part of that. Well, listeners, we thank you all for being a part of this conversation today. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for me, please do send me an email. I'm at mvano at stmargaretschurch.org. Please join us again next time because our J-O-Y is not complete without you. This is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Vano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. Mm-hmm.